Homestyle Green, episode 130. Beautiful architecture and great thermal envelopes with Christine Albertson from Albertson and Hansen Architecture. They're from Minneapolis. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green, brought to you by the very good folk at Proclima for very high-performance thermal envelopes. And high-performance envelopes is something that we are discussing today with Christine Albertson, and she is of uh, Scandinavian heritage, and that comes through, I think, in some of her design, which you should definitely check out. Uh, I'll put the links to her firm over in the show notes. Um, and as well as absolutely stunning, beautiful designs, she also gets into discussing the importance of a really good thermal envelope, which I love, love hearing about good thermal envelopes. And uh, as I mentioned, Proclima is someone who can definitely help you out with a good, not only thermal envelope, but also sorting out any moisture control that you might need to be conscious of with your high-performance home as well. So check them out, proclima.com. Uh, proclimate.com.au if you're in Australia and proclimate.co.nz if you are here in New Zealand. Thank you very much to them for sponsoring this show, making it possible each week. Now, I started out by asking Christine why she does what she does. Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, I've been, I've been uh, practicing residential architecture for the last 23 years or so. And for me, it's really consistently been driven by a passion for creating wonderful space for people to live in. I mean, that's really the big driver, mm-hmm. um, first and foremost. I, I get such satisfaction out of my client relationships and the challenges that they put before us with their uh, goals and, and their needs and their desires and their family dynamics and their you know the, all of the complexity that goes along with it. Um, but I'm also driven by a passion for really good design and very responsibly built buildings. So, so initially, but, was it that that people side, or was it the kind of drawing and the technical side that attracted you to architecture? Yeah, I think it was the design, the drawing, and the problem solving. I've always right. been obsessed with buildings my pretty much my whole life. <laughs> Even as a child, that was all I wanted to do was explore buildings and make little buildings. And then when I got my first camera, I just took pictures of buildings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved to, to draw and I loved art and I loved music and I loved math. And, you know, so it was really a, a kind of a natural coming together of all those different um, interests and, and, and proclivities into, into a very satisfying, you know, line of work. And what's been the journey to um, having your own firm? Well, mostly that's been kind of a response initially to the um, culture of the profession of architecture in in this country, Mm -hmm. which has been traditionally very kind of male-centered and very, um, you know, work till you drop, you get advancement by putting in as much overtime as possible. um, And... Uh, I just never really felt that that was the only way to practice. Right. Um, yeah. Doesn't sound so very appealing. When, when I had when I had um, my first child, and I went back to work, I really felt sort of, you know, moved to the back room, and uh, 
that wasn't really why I wanted to go to the office every day. Yeah. <laughs> and so it really just be, it just, and then I had people who were contacting me to design houses for them or projects for them. And I felt like, you know, I really need to do this in my own terms so I can develop the relationships with people the way that I want to and, and maintain the, the balance in my life that I needed. So it was sort of like a way for me to, you know, respond to the culture of the profession by trying to change the culture of the profession <laughs> right. and developing my own business culture, um, which is what we've done in our practice over the last 15 years. Yeah. And was that a hard transition? You, know, you make it sound kind of easy just going from a, a, a an established firm to having a handful of your own clients. But I, oh, I, what yeah. I hear from architects is you don't really get set up for being a business owner when you go through architecture school. No, but I, you know, I think I got really lucky because a because we have such a, a wonderful community here of our, our the American Institute of Architects, our our, our Minneapolis chapter, Minnesota branch here mm-hmm. is so supportive, and so I've been active in the AIA. And when I started my own firm, I had a lot of referrals from other architects who didn't do residential work, nice. who knew I started to practice and would send me people, which I had never imagined would happen, you know. And then I think I was fortunate in the timing. The economy at the time in 2000 was in a little bit of a of a uptick. You know, things were were kind of okay, and so I, and there were there were incentives for people to start businesses at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty easy to lease computer equipment, and it seemed fairly simple. Plus, my husband at the time was working; um, he had a full time job job at another firm, and so we we sort of balanced that risk by. He had the full-time job with the benefits, and I took the risk of starting the practice. And then he eventually, uh, a few years later, uh, when we realized that he was bringing in a lot of the work at his firm, we decided that he might as well bring that into our firm. Right, yeah. (laughs) So after about three years, um, he left his job and joined the practice as well. And how's that working relationship? You know, we have a really good working relationship. It's been uh, 15 years since I started the firm. We've been working together for 13 of those. Um, and before that, we worked at a different um, uh, office together. Um, and we have just become so accustomed to having that kind of professional relationship. Um, we find that it, it really almost works you know, better than, than our home life. Nice, nice. Uh, so, yeah. So, we're, we, uh, we really enjoy that. And we bring different strengths to, to the practice. Um, I'm much more of a kind of uh, entrepreneurial thinker and, and, and eye on the horizon kind of a person. And, and Todd is, is a sort of detail-oriented, very focused on design resolution. Um, and it's a very good balance. Right. And, and does Todd focus on residential as well? Yes. That's pretty much all we do in our practice. We have the occasional commercial project, um, maybe, maybe one or two a year, but the bulk of our work is is all kinds of residential, um, from new residences, a lot of second homes we do, uh, a lot of remodelings, um, additions, down to you know little tiny bathroom and basement projects, um, the full gamut. I, tell me about dogs. I love that you have a menu <laughs> item on your website that alongside <laughs> living rooms, music rooms, bathrooms, and dogs. Yes, you know. It sort of started as a joke because they seem to always want to be in the photographs and they were always the most fun photographs, you know. <laughs> the photo bombing. <laughs> we didn't have a dog, you know. But, yeah. But um, I think 
what 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 we enjoy about it is that it sort of sums up the um, the fun that we'd want to have in designing residential space. That really you, you go home and you relax with your family and your uh-huh. pet. And, you know, it's it's not so precious and reverent. Yeah, <laughs> we really enjoy coming up with the custom dog bowl drawer thing where you can not trip on the bowls or thinking about where the kennels are going to go or, or the cat box, whatever the pet is that is at hand. Um, and, and think it sort of shows that no detail is too mundane for us to take seriously. I had, um, a guest on the show previously who was a, a young female architect and she had very a big part of her philosophy was fun and she included all sorts of um, crazy things in her house like hidden wardrobes and uh, or hidden doors behind bookcases and secret passageways for the kids to tunnels to climb up. <laughs> Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, it kind of made me want to be an architect. The amount of fun that she was having uh, designing these these places. So obviously, that's a big part of of what you try to create with your clients as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you can't do too much of that because you know there's the practical side as well. Yeah. But but I think the idea of whimsy and creative um, creative unexpected kinds of solutions isn't just um, it doesn't just apply to those kinds of, of features like hidden doorways and, and, and moving bookcases which we've done several of and always love to do them but I think it also applies to kind of how you think about you know the interaction of, of casing and cabinetry and thinking about it in a, in a creative and whimsical kind of way or or the interplay of uh, different proportioned windows on the exterior of a, of a facade of a building and how you know how much wall space is there to open space and how close does it get to the corner and can you make little little jokes and little fun stories out of the way that you bring the form together mm. and that's something that's always been very very interesting and, and hugely motivating for me every every drawing is really about finding that sort of tension between excellent function and and magical whimsy you know (laughs) yeah and a lot of your we're just flicking through your portfolio which are stunning images on your website by the way so i definitely encourage people to go and check those out you've got a whole range of kind of um of acknowledging the past and beautiful timber curved timber timber archways to ultra modern heavy industrial kitchens almost um a huge mix there in in style Mm -hmm. i mean we we have been working on trying to verbalize what is this all about and what we've started to formulate is is an explanation that's something like this that we see our work as part of a continuum of of you know 4000 years of of documented architecture right mm. and that and that we have you know the great great responsibility of tapping into that tradition and not only selecting you know one little tiny piece of it that we're going to be interested in um, we're really interested in, in, you know, so many elements of how the problem of building a residence or a dwelling has been solved over, you know, thousands of years and uh, enjoy kind of 
the, the problem of saying, okay, how did they do it, you know, uh, 300 years ago in this particular place? What was mm-hmm. the fun idea that they had? If there yeah, was a fun yeah. And how can we, how can we bring that forward and transform that thinking into, uh, how we live today? Right. And, and so we really believe that, that having some kind of rootedness in, and an understanding of the tradition that we are a part of gives our work today much more meaning and relevance. Where do you see a lot of people go wrong with either designing a house or just buying a house? Well, the designing, I'll start with the designing question. We see a lot of houses in our city right now being torn down and replaced with new developments that are done on a very low cost, you know, the lowest possible mm-hmm. square foot cost to yep. get the, the, or square meter cost, I should say, to get the highest um, highest price, you know, cheap, fast, big. And the sad part is that, uh, they're, they're building these houses that are like completely character free. And so there's one actually going up, um, very close to where I live. And it's just this sort of white box with decorations pasted on the outside you right. know, and, and no subtlety in sort of how the windows are handled on the side of the house where it faces the neighbor. And Mm. there's a kind of real missed opportunity in thinking about, you know, all of the different conditions around an urban house and that you don't only just want to have little slit windows that face your neighbor because that that kind of limits the whole set of other possible you know, letting in a light or view or, or, you know, seeing your neighbor, maybe, maybe that's not so bad once in a while. (laughs) Um, So there's a kind of reliance on prejudice and, you know, the cheapest possible uh, uh, building techniques and, and a lack of deep thought then that results in just a a product that it's not going to stand the test of time. So that's, Mm. that's really hard to watch, but you know, there isn't much, we, we can't exactly stop by the job site and say, Hey, you know, (laughs) why don't you start over? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I'd like to, but, um, and then in buying a house, I I think, um, that's a really good question. Uh, one of the things that we do quite often is people will call us and ask us to walk through a property with them before they purchase it to talk through what the potential of the house is and if what they, how they want to change it. Um, if that has, you know, some potential for them, if it'll work. And, and I feel like that's a really smart thing that yeah. bringing in a professional before they actually make a commitment to the property. Yeah. Um, so we'll do like a, a, an hour visit and then I'll do a quick sketch or something to say, I, th- I think what you wanted, what you're thinking isn't quite right. But what if you did it this way, you could probably do it for close to your budget, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's that's a really smart thing to do. And I, but I would say that the bigger problem, I guess, with with real estate purchasing and valuation is sort of a bigger philosophical issue that I have with it, uh, at least in this country, is that you know the 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 way that real estate is valued has no relationship to the quality of the building. Yep. And that that is a huge disconnect and a huge problem because then when we try to build something that is quality, is sustainable, is well thought through, and will stand up to the test of time, especially in our climate, 
there's no there's no way that there's a comp for that <laughs> anywhere yeah. you know in the in the in the area and that and that is a very tough issue because the the way that the the real estate is valued and set up and how banks deal with you know construction loans it just gets in the way of actually moving the quality of our built environment forward I think you touched on a, a really good point right at the beginning of that question, which was the the difference between price and price per square meter. And that price per square meter is just such a pointless metric from a quality and lifestyle perspective, but it seems to be become such an important thing in the real estate market. And as for valuation, I I, I value valuation of housing. I think it's a bit of a dark art. Really, it's it's a I don't understand it at all. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So We've had a what? what I mean, <laughs> that that's going on, and there there is a big drive, and and that's that's not an issue. None of that's an issue that's specific to your area. That we, I see that when I speak to people all over uh, New Zealand, certainly in Australia, and I know it's big in the UK. And the other thing that's really big is is affordability in general. Affordability is causing issues for housing everywhere. So how do we um, resolve that issue about cheapness but also providing good quality housing at, a, at an af- what's considered affordable price? That is just like such a difficult question, you know, because everybody – first of all, there, there's, so many, uh, there's so many subjective points in there, right? So, so who, how do we define what affordability is uh-huh. for whom? How do we define what quality housing is and for whom? Um, and uh, you know, what we deal with are this, this sort of classic first world type of problems, right? So we're dealing with people who have plenty of money generally, um, but they don't always, they always want more than they can afford, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to deal with that particular problem of how to make something affordable for that group of people, I find that the most effective way to do that is to really help them understand what it is that they really want, you know, because we really don't need that much. Yeah. <laughs> and people always think they need so much, you know, and I'm very, very interested in working with people who want to get down to the sort of essence of that question. Um, can we live with less and do it more, more cleverly? Um, and that will allow us to spend more per square meter to build a really quality building. I'm much more interested in that as a problem. How do you do that? Well, it's, a, it's sort of the whole process, really. We work with them every step of the way to get both um, very, very clear idea of what their goals are and their budget goals and uh, help them winnow the essence of their, of their program. But then also as we develop the design, have an outside builder give us real pricing as we're going forward to make sure that, okay, what we're drawing for you doesn't meet your budget or does meet your budget or in order for it to meet your budget, we need to make reductions in your scope. So that's a big part of our process and it goes through really the entire project. So if Um, I come to you um, and it's me and my wife and a young family and I say, we want five um, bedrooms, three bathrooms, and a triple garage uh, because that's what we think is going to be good for resale. You might give us a, a reality check by going and g- giving us a real quote for that. 
correct. Or I might say, do you really need three bathrooms? I'm actually doing that exact project right now. Right. And is that, a, is that a hard conversation to have if someone's got that fixed in their mind of that's what we've got to have, we've got to keep up with the neighbours here? Sometimes it is. And I get tired of hearing myself say the same thing over again, you know, over and over. You, you, you might want to cut back here, you know, or you're going to need to cut back here. But I also warn my clients. I say, I'm going to play that role with you. Right. I, I have no qualms about it, and I'm going to say it over and over again. <laughs> and you so, can either accept it or yeah. you can say, we st- we're still going to go with the three bathrooms. Right. You know? <laughs> or the five bathrooms, this is the case maybe. <laughs> so you set that expectation early on to, to let them know that you're going to push them on, on certain aspects. That's right. That's right. And the expectation that finding the balance between budget and scope is an ongoing process mm, mm, throughout the entire project. And I can see how that would be really useful to get a builder or someone on board early on. So it's not just you saying, oh, I think this is going to be really expensive, but you can actually present something to them and say, look, you've told me what you'd like. This is the reality of what it's going to cost. Correct. That's really, really important because as architects, you know, architects don't always have the best reputation for being the champions of budget. You're right. (laughs) Well, yeah. Especially if, if your fees are related to the uh, to the price of the the um, build, then the motivation's the other way, isn't it? Well, that's what the perception would be, you know. But our motivation is to help people have a successful outcome. Yeah, I mean that's really why I'm in this. You know, I'm not in this to make money. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be doing something else if that's what I was yeah. interested in. You know? So, what tips have you got for uh, someone who is embarking on the journey to design or get, uh, make a new home for themselves or or change an existing home? Is, have you got a, a, a sort of a top three tips for people embarking on that journey? Uh, yeah, I'd say for for if you're building a new home. I would say really a good idea to be very realistic about what you think your needs really are, you know, and think, start thinking about how, how little can you live with because the, the less you build, the higher quality you'll be able to make it and the more you could then, for example, add on such extras, which unfortunately they are extras, but things like, you know, solar uh, PVs, uh, geothermal heat, you know, um, alternative energy sources, or um, some of these better sustainable elements that are at a lot of cost to a project and don't just automatically go along with that that initial build if you try to do the five bedrooms and eight bathrooms and three yeah. carbons, you know. Yeah. So that would be my, my suggestion there. And then if, it, if you're doing a remodeling, which we do a lot of, um, and I just had this conversation with a woman earlier this week who came in to talk to us about she bought this house. They've only been there a few months. They don't really know how they use the house. And one of the things that we talked with her about doing was kind of assessing how are you using the space that you actually currently have? Is there a way to utilize it more smartly and more effectively so that your remodeling can be driven by how you actually live? And making the best use of the space you, you currently have. Because the more you can uh, remodel existing space for, per square foot, you're, it's going to be a better value mm. than if you, you know, throw everything into the addition. You know? mm. So if we can make the addition kind of minimal to, ex- to improve the functionality of the space that you already have, that's a better use of resources. 
Right, so it's a similar concept in that you, you're trying to reduce the amount of space you've actually got to create. Yeah, by um, thinking really carefully and deeply about, about how you live. And going for quality rather than quantity. Correct. Anything else from, uh, you mentioned a few products there and some of the things, are you adding things like geothermal heating and solar? Is that becoming more common in the palette now? Uh, it It is. Um, certainly in Europe, geothermal is a much better um, choice because they have a much shorter, um, uh, what's it called, uh, period of time where you actually can recoup your investment. Mm. Uh, I can't think of the term for that right now. Um, here, our energy is so inexpensive, comparatively speaking, which is, uh, I think, a, a policy problem. But um, so it does. So your payback is like twenty years. Yeah, you? right. And so for people, you know, when they get to the point in their lives when they can afford to build their retirement home, and we've had this this modeled for some clients. It just doesn't make sense for them to make that investment, you know. So that's a, that's a bit unfortunate. Um, but solar is getting cheaper and cheaper, and we're doing more and more solar, and we have more and more interest in it. Um, so that's that's pretty exciting. And that, but I think the number one sustainable thing that that anyone can do is, is as I was saying earlier, build more efficiently, but also build the best possible thermal envelope that you can because the more efficient that your house and windows are the less energy costs are going to be and that that is the most sustainable way really and then to build your house healthily you know we don't use things that off gas poisonous chemicals and you know use the healthiest materials that you can yeah because you're spending so much time in your indoor environment uh making it a healthy indoor environment is it, it should be a, pri a huge priority of anybody embarking on a on a building project sorry christine we we i just cut out at the beginning of that so that was thermal envelope you you mentioned was the the critical part of the efficiency was that correct yes i think focusing on a building the best thermal envelope you can and utilizing we actually use a um, consultant consultancy group as on as many projects as we can as independent um, building envelope testing company that will come in and actually do a blower door test and and to, while the insulation and vapor barrier and whatever the system that we're using mm -hmm. is being installed looking for weaknesses and trying to correct them before they get covered up sealing duct work you know making sure that we're not building in some minuscule little problem where moisture could accumulate inside of the wall and, and create a mold situation that then creates a big problem down the road. Having that, investing that kind of uh, time in the beginning when you're actually building the house and, and installing your thermal envelope is an incredibly good investment. And when you're doing that, are you going beyond what's required? By code? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We Code is sort of like, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we prefer to build... Uh, beyond code. And how do you justify the extra expense of all that testing? Um, it's not that expensive. It's like sometimes it's as little as $1,500 through the course of the project. Right. Which when you look at what kinds of, what kind of insurance that is that you're buying, it's actually a really good investment. So we just make that argument with people. We say, you know, you're, you're buying yourself a, a little insurance policy here. Yeah. And staving off Problems. I mean, we have the kind of climate where problems will compound really quickly. Yeah. 
And yeah. nobody wants to be the one left holding the bag on that. You mentioned uh, before we start recording that you feel that you have a good quality of clientele and people have a good understanding of those sorts of issues. Is that always the case or do you often have some people that you have to convince to, to go a little bit further uh, in, in that direction? You know, I think we live in a, in a place where people are generally pretty well informed about the fact that building science is something that they need to be aware of. They may not understand it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know that they need to be aware of it. And that there's been a lot of, uh, uh, of sort of stories in the news about, you know, 1990s drive it stucco exterior clad buildings that have failed. Um, yep. all over North America, yep. you know, so people are very aware of that. In fact, unfortunately, this uh, old original stucco from, you know, before they had all the insulation problems with it and envelope problems with it has gotten a bad reputation. And yeah. I get that call from a lot of people. I'm looking at this 1925 stucco house. Yeah. Just, you know, I'm like, no, yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> that's a great product. Yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> Don't touch it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all the stuff uh, in the middle. Yeah, so I think that has left people understanding that mold happens. Yep. <laughs> and that they need to be aware that they're, they're, it's possible if it's built right, you know, to avoid that. That's a really interesting outcome because that issue around leakiness from the outside has certainly been prevalent here, and I know it's prevalent elsewhere. But it doesn't ne hasn't necessarily led to people asking those questions about overall thermal envelope and right. performance. It just says, basically, the, the knee-jerk reaction is similar to that. It's like, I don't want a stucco house. Um, right. And, and it haven't, they haven't necessarily made that connection between, or maybe I need to be thinking about insulation and ventilation and heating uh, as well. So right. clearly there's been a good level of education in the mainstream media or the press or, or some base level of understanding that's helped the community understand those um, building science principles. It's also mandated by code here. Well, that helps. So, yeah, people uh, understand that they have to meet the, the thermal envelope requirements that, that to get their building permit. Um, so having that requirement at a... Does that mean that having that requirement at a base level, therefore, sort of catapults a, a bigger understanding of the value and therefore makes it easier to go beyond that code requirement? Yes, I think that's right. right. But, you know, our bigger problem is moisture intrusion from the inside. And so yeah. because of our, the, our extreme climate, we have such a temperature differential yeah. some, for big parts of the year. So we have a problem of moisture actually uh, dew point inside of the wall of where the warm interior air is driven into the into the wall, and if it if it condenses in the wrong place, then you get the problem. So it's more that's a bigger and more kind of invisible problem. <laughs> totally, and and I don't yeah. think that's isolated to your area. I think as we no. insulate our buildings more and more, and we get them more airtight. That's going to become um, more and more of a problem. And, and in fact, Absolutely. Thomas. Uh, yeah. Van Ramsdonk here from ProClima talks about it as leaky buildings 2.0 where That's we've right. we fixed the um, water ingress issue from outside but now we're we're scratching our heads and thinking where's this moisture coming from not realizing that usually it's coming from us breathing right the only and, the only um, thing that 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 can really affect that depending on where you live is that different parts of the world have um, 
you know, different moisture dew drop relationships through times of the year that, that some, in some parts of the world, it's only a concern for a few weeks. Yeah. And in some parts of the world, it's a concern for eight months out of the year, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where you can, you can really get away with, as we talked about earlier, um, before your interview started, you can really get away with not addressing a, a properly detailed building envelope from a, from a, a dew point perspective in many parts of the world because it's not going to really come into play. But as we have climate change, that's going to change mm. and parts of the world will be affected as it gets warmer and moister. And also it may still be causing a problem. It's just not as visible um, straight away. That's right. So it yeah. might, um, the, the symptoms might be more visible 10 years down the track and then they're going to be right. yeah. rotted studs and timber framing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, you hinted, well, you said that you get exterior, external consultants on board to help out with all that side. Is that the way that you mostly deal with those sorts of issues? Um, we, we like to do that when we're under construction and also for larger, more complicated projects, just to make sure that we're detailing it correctly. Because we're not, we're not expert building scientists. Um, ourselves, I mean, we tend to we want to focus on what we're really passionate mm. about, which is the quality of the design and the detailing and creating the magic, you know. Yeah. Um, but we know that we have a big responsibility as a, as licensed architects to to protect the uh, durability and, and safety and well being of our of our clients and, and yeah. their investment, you know. So so that's that's why we do that is to make sure that. Because we can't be on top of everything <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah. We'd like to be, but nobody can do that. Christine, I'm going to put some links up and, and encourage people to go and have a look at some of your stunning images on your portfolio page of your website. Um, where can people find out about you and, and get in touch with you if they want to find out more? We are at uh, www.aharchitecture.com and uh, we have a... a an email link there. Um, we're going to be launching a, a blog uh, starting in July. Awesome. Um, yes, yeah, so we're very excited about that. Um, so, so be on the lookout for that. I'll be talking. I'll be writing about some of these ideas and, and issues um, every other week. And uh, uh, come and see us in Minnesota. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you're on Facebook as well. And uh, we have a Facebook site. Yes. Yeah. Do you uh, do you work outside of, of Minnesota? We do. We have projects really in many states in our region, but also California, North Dakota, um, Michigan. It's really what what we're more interested in is finding like-minded clients who share our values mm-hmm. and who really you know want to collaborate with us to to create that that special project that, that fits what their goals are. And so um, we've, we've, we're, we're, we really welcome the idea of working outside of our region because, you know, it also, it, it becomes this wonderful opportunity for us to learn and become educated by how people do things in other parts of the country as well. Nice. It's been fascinating working in California because their, um, their building codes are much more stringent um, yeah. Than they are here in Minnesota, and they're always kind of the harbinger of what's coming in the in the um, you know U.S. Uh, building code book. Is California is always the one who's testing out you know 
testing out things. So um, we've done a couple of projects there, and, and that's been a tremendous learning curve for us. Great. Hey, well, thank you very much for your time, Christina. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll we'll keep in touch. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. I look you. forward to hearing this, the podcast when it's done. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. And that was Christine Albertson from Albertson Hanson Architecture. Check them out. As Christine mentioned, aharchitecture.com and definitely go and check out their website. You land on their portfolio page, which is absolutely stunning. And I'm a little bit critical of uh, architecture firms. The long-time listeners might have heard me comment a few times on uh, some architecture websites, but this one is a good one. It's got a beautiful balance between displaying stunning images but has also got some nice succinct uh, text about why they do what they do what their philosophy is and of course how to contact them if you're an architect and you don't have good contact information then you definitely need to get that sorted on your website if you're looking at uh, wanting to produce your high performance house for yourself or maybe it's for someone else then um, give us a call I'd love to see if I can help out. Maybe you need a bit of a design review or just someone to uh, look over and see if there's any um, things that have been missed or things that can be improved. Then I do have a design review service available and you can find more about that over at homestylegreen.com or you can email me matthew at homestylegreen.com. You can find all the show notes for this episode on homestylegreen.com forward slash 130 for episode 130. If they're not there straight away, then do come back again because I'm um, a little bit delayed with some of the show notes at the moment because I've been a little bit busy. I've been away from home, which is all good, but uh, we'll catch up eventually. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this show. Uh, tune in again next week. But for now, go make a better place to live. 